Let us pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we thank you for our salvation in Christ on the cross. But we know, Lord, that without Christ dying on the cross, that we would have no forgiveness of our sins and would not be able to enter into your presence eternally. Thank you that we have the hope through Christ's resurrection and ascension, and we have your presence within us by your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, we pray. I pray for all who are here this morning who know you and believe you and have a relationship with you, that by your Holy Spirit's power and working in our lives, you would you would teach us the truth of your word, that you would call us to to greater obedience, that you would call us to greater joy, that you would call, call us to, 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 to greater faithfulness in following you. Lord, for those that might be here this morning who don't know you, I pray that by your spirit, you would open their eyes to see the wonderful truth of your word and the, the beautiful gift of salvation that we don't have to earn. May you grant us understanding this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 26, or 27 rather, uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week. And the title of the message this morning is The Son's Death and the Father's Glory. And so this is the portion in the text that begins to look at the passion of Christ, where Christ himself has turned his face toward the cross and no longer will he be doing and engaging in public ministry as he's been engaging in public ministry up to this point, doing signs and wonders and works, casting out, uh, well, in, in the Gospel of John, he's been healing uh, people, he's been opening the eyes of the blind, he's been raising people from the dead or raising Lazarus from the dead. And so this morning, what, what I think this text shows us and, and culminates in showing us is it, it shows us that Christ in his substitutionary atonement or his death being a substitute for us, that Christ on the cross accomplished the reversal of sin's domination over and alienation of God's good creation. In other words, he in this text we see a foreshadowing, a, a pointing us forward to see what Christ himself has done in redeeming the world. And so we see Christ's work of conforming to the Father's will serves for us as a model or it instructs us to live lives of conformity at the expense of our comforts. And so the, I would say, Quite simply, the hope this morning is that we would all truly be sons and daughters of light as Jesus challenges those in the crowd who hear him in verse 36. First, this morning, I, I want to point out this statement that uh, that seemed very clear to me as I wrote it down, but I recognize that maybe it's a bit ambiguous, this principle of redemptive conformity is is what's written there in the outline the first point this morning redemptive conformity and i want to explain what i mean by redemptive conformity in verses 27 through 36 before we 
jump into the uh, the outline. Let us uh, let us begin by reading. So if you found your place in John chapter 12, verse 27, say word. Word. All right, let's read verse 27. Now, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by heard it and were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying and an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, judgment is upon this world. Now, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him. We've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Verse 35. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. First, I want us to see this morning how this text points us to this idea or this truth of redemptive conformity. When we think of the word conformity, oftentimes I think we have a negative connotation of this word conform. We call to mind maybe a verse like Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, And do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. This idea of conforming, we we tend to associate that with something that's negative. We we don't want to conform, but we want to be transformed. And this is true. I want to challenge you this morning to approach the word conformity from Jesus's perspective, from the perspective of Christ's prayer. We tend to think of conformity from this perspective or from the perspective of of looking like the world. And that's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking instead about looking like Jesus. Not looking like the world, but looking like Christ. And since we're in the world, this idea of not looking like the world, it resonates with us because we don't want to conform to the patterns of the world or the philosophies of the world. Instead, we we want to conform to the image of Christ. We want to be shaped more like Christ, made into his image. So I'm advocating for our understanding of this passage, that it would be in line with Jesus and what he has already spoken. In verses 25 and 26, hear what Jesus said. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You see, in this passage, conformity is the antithesis or the contrast to being comfortable. It is contrasted with that of comfort. Notice Jesus' prayer in verses 27 and 28. Jesus 
models his prayer or models his conformity to God's plan for the glory of God for us. He says, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Here's his prayer. Jesus, in this very prayer, he models conformity to God's plan for the glory of God. He's in deep anguish and his soul is troubled. He knows what's about to happen. He's already spoken of it back in verse 23 that we saw last week. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. This prospect of the cross for Jesus is daunting. I don't know if we can truly grasp the depth of what Jesus I don't think we can truly grasp the depth of what Jesus is experiencing as he looks forward to the cross. The weight of redemption of sin for the world is resting on his shoulders and he knows the agony that the cross will bring. He knows the struggle. He knows the 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 difficulty that he will walk through. He knows the pain physically that he will walk through. And I believe it's here that we see the the agony of mental anguish as Jesus asked the question, what shall I say? What shall I it, it seems most natural as we read the text, maybe your version places a question mark after father save me from this hour as if this might be a rhetorical question. But I, I think we need to understand this as as a as a question. What shall I say? And then a statement, father, save me from this hour as, as if this is a real choice that he has. Father, at this point, save me from this hour. And I think what we see is Christ battling through his own Comfort and conformity. Shall I take the comfortable way or shall I conform to the will of the Father? We see this in his prayer. And then we come across that conjunction. He says, but, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. But for this reason, he, it, it clues us into his unswerving commitment of submission to the Father's will. He won't allow the comfortable road to detract him from the Father's sovereign plan. He is moving forward. He is pressing on. He is heading toward the cross. So he says, for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then he makes that great declaration. Father, glorify your name. That prayer, which is a command all at once. It, the glorify is the command in the Greek text. And, and he's, he's, he's telling Father, glorify. He's saying, Father, at this one point in time, glorify your name. In fact, both are commands. The word save that he prays, save me from this hour. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, Father, glorify your name. The verb tenses indicate for us kind of a a snapshot. You remember having maybe... Maybe some do, maybe some don't. Who in here, raise your hand, who in here has ever seen a Polaroid camera? All right, good, everybody. All right, awesome. Well, except my children. All right, so a Polaroid camera, you take a, a picture and it, it what? It prints out the picture, right? It, it, I mean, you take it and it prints it out there and it develops right right there when the air hits it. And 
Uh, it's this snapshot. It, it gives you a glimpse at, at one particular event. And it, it almost gives you a lens through which to see everything else through this one particular event. And, th- and that's what we have in this, this prayer or what Jesus is saying here. Father, glorify your name. He, he's speaking of the snapshot. When he says glorify your name, he's pointing forward to the cross to so that, that one event. Father, glorify your name then at the cross. Glorify it. He's speaking of this single act in which God's name would preeminently be glorified. And the act is the cross. And this is the prayer that's been really the, the chief end of Jesus' earthly activity and, and ministry. His ministry purpose and mission has been to glorify the Father in all that he does. And so the Father answers, verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. I have both glorified it, meaning through the incarnation of Christ. Christ, remember back in chapter 1, verse 18, he is the unique one who is uniquely qualified to explain the Father to us. The text literally says to exegete the Father. He's the one who explains the Father to us as the incarnate one come from God. And as the one who is able to explain, God says, I have both glorified it in your life through the earthly ministry and the signs and the miracles that you have performed, and I will glorify it again, future tense, pointing to the cross. He will glorify it again when Christ dies and is resurrected from the grave. And so the cross will be the supreme act by which the Father glorifies his name. Jesus Christ then redeems sinful man through the cross. And so the call of verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And the call of verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. This call teaches us that to follow Jesus, it reveals something of the Christian's journey. It reveals the difficulty of the Christian's journey. We're confronted with the reality that Jesus didn't find the road to glorification in the comfortable or the easy way. No, in fact, he found the road to glorification in the conforming way. It's reminiscent of the prayer that he prayed in Gethsemane. Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so the work of Christ on the cross accomplishes the very glory of the Father And what I want us to see this morning is that being a disciple of Christ is a call to follow. It's a call to emulate. It's a call to forsake all other things and to conform to Christ's likeness. And when we conform to the likeness of Christ, oftentimes it'll mean for us forsaking the comfortable way. Oftentimes it'll mean pursuing the conforming way of Christ. Warren Wiersbe said, God does not expect us to be comfortable, but he does expect us to be conformable. See, Christ's mission then can be seen in conforming to the will of God to redeem the world. And here's a real hard question I want us to ask ourselves this morning. Can that be said of our lives Can it be said of our lives that we live in the sense of 
redemptive conformity like Christ. What I mean by that is, can it be said in our lives that we ourselves are conforming daily to Christ's likeness in order that he might use us to be agents of redemption within this world? Does my life, does your life, does, does our lives point others through the gospel, through the cross, to God? Are we moldable? Are we pliable? Malleable? Are we, are we conformable to the will of God? How are you, how am I, actively being shaped into the image of Christ so that we are one of God's redemptive agents in His creation being used for His glory? I pray that we'll consider that this morning as we see what Christ has done in saying, shall I say, save me from this hour? Father, glorify your name. His chief end was to bring glory to the Father so that the creation would be redeemed. And as those who would be conformed into the likeness of Christ, we too must yield ourselves and conform to the image of Christ that God would use us in order to redeem the world through the cross of Christ. The crowd responds thinking that in verse 30, thinking that they they had they had heard thunder or, or maybe that an angel had spoken to to him. But in spite of the crowd's uh, incomprehension and, and lack of understanding, Jesus tells them in verse 30, this isn't for me as much as it is for you. But in what way was it for a crowd for the crowd? If they didn't understand what was said, if they thought it was thunder or, or maybe thought it was an angel speaking, but they didn't understand what was said, in what way was this voice for the crowd that was gathered there? I think, one, is it, it offers confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. He's not some pretender praying to some father, someone he calls father up above. No, Jesus is praying to the Father, and it, it shows that he himself has communion with the Father, that he truly is who he says he is, the incarnate one of God. Secondly, I think it speaks to the reality that God is glorified and will glorify Jesus in the cross for his own glory and for our good. And so then we ask the question, or at least I ask the question, what, what did the cross accomplish? If he's pointing to the cross, if he's heading to the cross, what does the cross accomplish? And so as this text serves as the introduction for the passion, where Jesus turns his face to the cross in the last week of his life, I want us to see how, how the passion of Christ is seen through he, him laying down his life and when he lays down his life, it's lifted up on the cross in order that he might be the one who is substituted in the place of man for the sin that they have committed. And so John gives us four results of the passion, the glorification of Christ on the cross. In verse 33, in fact, it says, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And so the, the, first, the first one that we see is the first um, 
The first result of, of the cross, of Jesus on the cross, is this, that judgment has come on the world now. Verse 31 now judgment is upon the world, right? This is the first result that we see. I mean, it's right there in the text, but it's not just judgment then at the end time. It's judgment now. And what John is teaching us is that the cross is issuing forth judgment on the world now. He's not speaking specifically of the final judgment. But he's speaking of judgment that begins with the cross of Christ, with the Messiah's crucifixion. It it climaxes at the cross. And on the cross, the light of Christ shines the brightest. His glory through the cross reveals and illuminates men's deeds. Shows them for what they truly are. Their deeds are either evil and deceptive or they're righteous and wrought. If they're evil and deceptive, then they're, they're seen as being birthed by Satan. If they are righteous and, and holy, then they're seen as being wrought in God, birthed in God. And so there's no ground, there's no middle ground at the cross. And so the cross issues forth judgment. And so they're both positive and negative consequences of the cross. And this is what John is telling us here. The world sees the cross as as judgment on Jesus, but God sees the cross as judgment on the world. What we must understand is that every area under creation has been both touched and redeemed or judged through the cross of Christ. Think about it. Whether it's church or family or politics our business, our art, or education, our journalism, our thought, or emotion, or the material versus the immaterial, all things have been touched and judged by the cross. Because they are part of God's good creation. And what I, what I want us to see this morning is that as image bearers of God, specifically those who are being conformed to Christ, we are responsible to God to shine the light of Christ's redeeming work through the cross in God's good creation. God wants to shine the light of his redemption through the cross through you and I as those who are image bearers of Christ. So how do we do this? Well, through the redemption that God has brought in our lives because of the cross of Christ, as we interact daily in the areas of business and art and education and family and church and journalism and thought and emotion and material and immaterial things, we, we ourselves being conformed into the image of Christ are bringing Christ and the cross and the implications of the cross to bear in any and every circumstance that we walk in. So the, the, the first result of, of the cross is it brings judgment on the world now. But the second result of the cross is that Satan, the ruler of the world, will be cast out, he says in verse 31. In fact, this speaks to verse 32 as well. Because Satan's being cast out is a simultaneous action with Christ being lifted up. They're set in contrast. When Christ is enthroned, or when Christ was enthroned on the cross, Satan was dethroned. And so Satan's reign as the prince of the world is overcome. 
We'll see in a few chapters, Christ's disciples are are able to overcome the schemes of Satan through the provision of the Holy Spirit. And in John chapter uh, chapter 16, verses 7 through 13, we read of Jesus speaking to his disciples and teaching them about the role of the Holy Spirit. Follow along on the screen as I read, beginning in verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness, because I go to the father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but I cannot you cannot hear them bear them now. Verse 13. But when he the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. You see, Satan, the ruler of this world, has been cast out and Jesus teaches his disciples that the role of the Holy Spirit, the helper, is to come alongside them and to help them and to teach them to overcome Satan, the ruler of this world. Because Christ in the cross has defeated the power of sin and death. He has defeated the power of Satan, the enemy. The third result of the cross of Christ is seen in verse 32, that Jesus is lifted up from the earth. He says, and I, emphatically, in order to emphasize himself, his work, in contrast to Satan being cast out. And I, when I am lifted up. He means here, uniquely, to be lifted up in such a way that he is exalted. In fact, this word is a unique understanding or a unique definition, a unique use of this word, lifted up. It commonly means throughout the rest of the New Testament to be exalted. It means exaltation. But here it carries a a double meaning because the crowd, they understand what Jesus means when he says that he is going to be lifted up. In verse 34, we see the crowd says, we've heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Jesus is saying. Here's what he's saying, that his being lifted up on the cross is the road to his exaltation with the father in glory. And so he's saying the only way to the glory of the father is through the cross. The implications of this second and and third consequence, a result of the cross, are huge for the believer. It means that Christ in you, in me, in us, by the presence of his Holy Spirit, he's he's able to overcome the temptation of the flesh of Satan or the the temptation of the flesh that that comes through Satan or Satan's work and power, his his presence at work in this world. It means that God has equipped his children in order to be able to walk in the strength and the supply of the spirit's presence and power. So that as we walk and follow God and walk with God. Christ, the Holy Spirit residing within us, is overcoming 
that of the world. Christ in us is able to overcome the enemy, Satan, and he's able to do this because of his work on the cross. Jesus Christ's work on the cross has dethroned Satan and has enthroned Christ. The question I would ask us this morning, believer, do you do you daily ask the Father to lead you by his spirit? Are we daily seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit's anointing so that so that as we walk through life, as we interact with others, that we we remain sensitive to God's leading and God's prompting? Are we reading God's word with the expectation of being changed day by day when we come to his word? You know, all too often we we forget God has not left us alone in our Christianity or in our discipleship. It's not it's not left up to us to to walk this walk this road or this life alone. In fact, I was I was sharing this. We were talking about this very truth and uh, in a family time that we were having in our family devotion the other morning. And I was reminding uh, the boys that that. We need we need to seek the father daily, we need to ask for God's uh, God's leading in our life. We need to we need to surrender and be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, because there is no way that in our own strength we can live under the demands of the law. We can't be holy enough or righteous enough or good enough. We can't we can't do enough good things to please our parents or to please God. The point that we must see is that Christ himself has given us of his spirit and it's by his spirit that we are able to overcome the enemy. It's by his spirit that we're able to walk in in the newness of life and we need the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life to empower us, to lead us. The fourth result of the cross of Christ is this. Jesus will draw all men to himself in verse 32. Jesus will draw all men to himself. He says it. I will draw all men to myself. And so Jesus, the incarnate word, suffers and dies and is glorified in order to draw all men to himself. But what does it mean here that he'll draw all men to himself? If all means all men universally, everyone then how are we understand? How are we to understand the judgment that's now on the world? How do we reconcile the statement with those who who see the cross as judgment on Jesus, and not seeing the cross as Jesus's judgment on the world? The answer lies in the difference between exception and distinction. Jesus doesn't say here that he'll draw all men to himself without exception. In other words, in in a universal sense. No, he's speaking of all men without distinction, meaning every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The fulfillment we see happens in Acts chapter 2, when on the day of Pentecost, when, when all the nations are drawn together there in Acts, and they hear the apostles begin speaking the word in their own native tongue. And it shows us the reversal of what happened at Babel in the, in the, in the spreading out of the peoples. Now they're coming back together in the cross of Christ. And then the whole book of Acts is a narrative showing us how the church spreads throughout all of the known world, throughout Gentile and Jew alike. 
the contextual clue is seen, though, in verses 19 through 23 up here in here in John chapter 12. In verse 19, the Pharisee said, the world has gone after him, speaking of Jesus. And then in verse 20, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. And those Greeks come up to Philip and Philip brings them to Andrew and Andrew and Philip come together and they they come before Jesus and tell him. And then Jesus says. This is the trigger. This was the trigger to show Jesus that the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now is the time of suffering on the cross. It's arrived. And so the dethroning of Satan, the exaltation of the son of man, the drawing of all men and women from the ends of the earth began with the decisive event of the Messiah's crucifixion and exaltation. This is the significance of the cross. This is what the cross accomplishes. The cross accomplished the reversal of sin's domination over an alienation of God's good creation from himself through Jesus Christ's substitutionary atonement. He was substituted in your place, in my place, to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against sin. Because as a sinner, I can never, I can never keep a holiness and a righteousness in and of my own strength to earn the salvation that comes from Christ alone. So the second question, the third point this morning I want to make is this. How do we become sons and daughters of light? Verses 35 and 36 ends on a high point. It's it's so simple, yet it's profound. There are two commands in these verses. The command, you, you can pick them out if you read from verse 35 and 36. You can see the commands. The first one is walk. The second one is believe. And, and, and it's simple. When we're walking, it, it, it involves movement. It means that we're going somewhere. The question is, can we see where we're going? We may be going somewhere, but can we see? Do we know where we're going? Do we know the direction we're moving in? Is the light shining? Are we walking in darkness? He says, for a little while longer, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. You know, the simplicity of the analogy is understandable for us. We we must walk while the light is there. And as we walk, we walk with the light so that we can see and we can we can navigate the path that we're on. The one who walks in the darkness can't see where she's going. She'll she'll lose her way. He'll lose his way. And so it is for all of those who reject the light of Christ and the revelation of Christ. They lose their way. They're overtaken by the darkness. How do we become sons and daughters of light? One is we must walk in the light. The second one is we must believe. We must believe in the light. He says it there in verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. The command to believe really begs the question for us. It begs the question, who are we following? Are we following Christ? Are we following the pattern of the world? 
Are we conforming to Christ-likeness or the pattern and philosophies that we see in the world? The pattern of the world is seen here is, is darkness, and it's in contrast to the light of Christ. And to be overtaken by darkness means to be blinded from the light of Christ. For many, for many, this is the profoundly difficult part. Believing that Jesus is the light and that he's shining the way to eternal life. So how do we become sons and daughters of light? How do we gain eternal life? By believing in Christ and following the brilliance of his light to the cross. And then from the cross to the grave. And then from the grave to the resurrection. And then one day to the ascension when God will honor all those who are servants of Christ by bringing us into his presence to experience his honor and his glory forever. Verse 26 tells us. There was a missionary who was home on leave. And the missionary was, uh, was, was shopping for a globe of the world and wanted to take the globe back to back to the mission field. And as, as the missionary was shopping for the globe, the clerk in the, in the store showed some reasonably priced globes to the missionary, but then kind of pulled one out of the back and, and, and said, this one's nicer, and it's illuminated. And then the clerk said, but of course a lighted world costs more. I think that's the point, right? A lighted world costs It'll cost our comfort. It'll cost us laying down our lives and not loving life more than we love Christ. It'll cost us hating our lives in this world that we might live for eternal life with God. Christ is the light of the world and he died on the cross to redeem his creation He's done an amazing thing in that he would call you and I as ambassadors of his light to reflect his light in the midst of his creation to be agents he would use in redeeming his creation. This is the mission of Christ. That we would see redemption, that we would be redeemed. But the cost is high. It'll cost us our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, I remind you this morning that we're not called to be comfortable, but we're called to be conformable. Have you believed in Jesus Christ? Has he made the difference in your life? Do you say one thing and live another? This war going on inside of you, would you, would you just surrender? Would you just submit your life to him and say, I quit running? Would you surrender it? Believer, how are you conforming to the image of Christ, our Redeemer? Are you prayerfully seeking opportunities to be redeemed or to be the redeemed light of Christ to your neighbors, to our co-workers, to those that, that we interact with on a daily basis, to other students, to our children, to our wife, to my wife? Are you depending on the Holy Spirit's counsel for guidance and purpose and joy? Holiness, I pray that we are. And if we're not, then we must repent. 
There must be an internal change in our hearts that we would repent and seek the Lord's face. How is the Lord challenging you this morning? In what way is he calling you to a closer walk, to a more faithful life of obedience? In what way is he calling you to experience the joy of his salvation? I pray that as we sing a song and close our time in the word, that you'll reflect and repent if you need to repent or trust Christ by confessing him as Lord and asking for forgiveness of your sin, that you'll do that this morning in prayer and adoration before the Lord. But I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite you to stand. And if you want to come and pray this morning at the steps in repentance or pray for someone else and intercede, you're welcome to do that. If you want to stay right where you are and just pray and cry out to God, you do that as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your love for us. We thank you for your goodness in our lives. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to strengthen us. We pray that you would strengthen us to respond to the grace that you've offered us even today. And we thank you for the cross. Now, Lord, we thank you as well that you have made us sons and daughters of light. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to be sensitive and submissive to your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?